I hope you've had a good day. I'm glad you're here again to worship with us and to uh, just be a part of the service. We're going to be in 1 John 3 tonight, near the end of the Bible, near the end of the New Testament. Uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. So the fifth book from the end, just turn there, if you would, to the third chapter of it. We're going to look at seven verses uh, together, one paragraph or so from the writing of John for the next little bit. Hope you've had a good day, and we appreciate your presence once again. Our young people, for the most part, I think are over and trustful tonight. They'll be back here in a couple hours. And Daniel prayed about our group in the Philippines. I'm not sure, but I know they're 13 hours ahead or so over there, I think. Uh, I guess they're about to get on an airplane. They're boarding somewhere around now. I think they're going to be back here tomorrow night. So I just pray that God will... Uh, protect them as they fly home and bless the work that they've done over there over the past uh, several days. There's this uh, issue we've addressed before, talked about a little bit before, and it's really, really addressed pretty directly in 1 John. You got, you got different kinds of folks in churches. You got people who struggle with assurance. That is, they never feel good enough. They never feel saved. And then you got folks in pews and churches who don't ever really feel like they do much of anything wrong. They don't ever have any doubts whatsoever about much of anything. They don't really seem to be pursuing righteousness. You know, you got, you got people in churches from different kinds of perspectives. And so it's a challenge when you think about how do you, how do you provide assurance to, to churches or specifically to individuals? How do, you, how do you help people to feel saved, you know? Um, without making people who are not saved feel saved. You, you, don't want a, you, don't want, you don't want folks who aren't right with the Lord to think they are, but nor do you want people who are pursuing righteousness to always be doubting whether or not they are right with God. First John 3, John, this is a tough passage in some ways, but it's comforting, challenging too, and I want to read it with you. And this, this is one of those passages that's going to be quite different depending on which translation you're reading from. And I know we've got people reading from different ones. I read from the English Standard Version, which I like. And I, and I like it particularly here better than some others for reasons that I'll point out in a minute. Uh, but I want to go ahead. I'm going to read it from the ESV. Just follow along in whatever Bible you, you have in front of you. If you're using the New King James, especially, or the King James, one of those two, you're going to notice some pretty significant trans translational differences. So just kind of note those, and I'll probably refer back to a couple of them as we go through this tonight. 1 John 3, let's read verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, that is, Jesus appeared, to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he's righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3, 4 through 10. I think I titled this lesson something 
have, have, emphasizing that, that really verse 10 as he kind of comes and ties it, ties it together. But I titled this lesson, how do, how do you know that you're a child of God or, or marks of a Christian? You know, what, what, what does a Christian look like? How do you know that you are? And really the short answer to this, we'll come full circle back, this, back to this at the end, but the answer to that question is, you know you're a Christian, at least according to this paragraph, there are other answers, but you know you're a Christian by what you do, by how you live. I don't want to water that down. I don't want to twist that. I don't want to, I don't want to like offer all these caveats to why that isn't the case. John states this emphatically. What you do as a Christian matters. And I know many of us are sensitive to this, and probably rightfully so, that we don't want to make Christianity all about some sort of works righteousness or a legalistic kind of approach. You get all this stuff right, and then you're good. But neither do we want to go to some other equally mistaken kind of perspective that, that almost makes it like it doesn't really matter what we do. John, John here says emphatically, what you do matters. And if you, are, if you are persisting in sin, you are not a Christian. It doesn't matter what you say you are. <coughs> you can confess Christ all day long as your Lord and Savior. But if you don't live a Christian life, you are not a Christian. You're, you're not one. So don't, don't say that you are. I think John's dealing with a specific set of circumstances. We don't know exactly what this group was doing, but we kind of get some hints from this text and a couple others in this book. But, but, uh, but anyway, we're going to wrestle with this for a little bit tonight. And how this will relate to you depends on where you are in your thinking and how you were raised, what kind of church you were brought up in, if you were brought up in a church at all, and how you think about your relationship to God. If you struggle with assurance, you always wonder... You always wonder, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'd be with the Lord eternally if I died right now. Or, uh, or, or maybe if you're at a point where you don't really think about sin that much, you know, you just feel like you're saved by grace and God doesn't really care that much about what you do. You know, what you do doesn't affect your, you know, your relationship to the Lord. So, or somewhere in between those. How you hear this will be determined by those things. So let's look at this text together. I pointed out that it's going to make a difference which translation you read from because of some things he says and the way that it's translated here, particularly the first part of verse 4 and a couple other spots in there. But there are two groups here, pretty clear. John, John thinks in twos uh, a lot of times. He, he has either this or that. So you only have two groups for John in this text. And the two groups are, this is on the back of the bulletin, I think there are blanks here if you want to fill this in, but... Two groups. You got people who make a, make a practice of sinning, and then you got people who make a practice of doing right. Pra making a practice of sinning or making a practice of righteousness. Th those are the two groups for John. Now, the reason it matters how this is translated is that, well, let me read just a little bit from the New King James. Some of you are using it. Uh, many of you aren't, but let me read a little bit of it. Uh, New King James puts it this way. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. You hear that? Whoever abides in him doesn't sin. Well, taken at face value, without nuancing that at all, I think about, I don't know how many people there are tonight, here tonight, I guess maybe that hadn't been determined yet, but however many people there are here, we're in, a, we're in trouble. 
All of us are. That, that number, whatever the number is, we're, we're in trouble because, because whoever abides in him doesn't sin. Well, if you negate the last part of that, doesn't sin, that means you and I, we, we do sin, then logically that would mean we don't abide in him. Then the next sentence, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Well, that would mean that if you and I sin, at least just reading this a certain way, if you and I sin, then we've never seen him and we've never known him. You see the problem here? And, and that's why I like the ESV, the, the way it tries to bring out the particular verb tense here. You see what I'm getting at here? Because, because th I think this is the way you've got to read this. Because you could certainly read this and, and seem to come away with it, the idea that John is saying, if you sin, even in an isolated sense, if you sin on occasion, then you are not walking with Christ. You are not a Christian because you sin. It would seem that John is teaching some sort of perfectionism that as a Christian you need to, you must live without sin whatsoever. But go back, we won't leave the book of 1 John, but go back in your text to 1 John 1 for a second because I think we need to interpret this in, in context. 1 John 1 verse 8 says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Then he goes on, verse 1 of chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and so on. So how do you reconcile these two this, this tension here, when First John chapter 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, he says that if you say you don't have any sin, then you're a liar. And then in First John 3, he seems to be saying, if you sin, then you are not part of God's family. So what's, is that a contradiction? John, did John forget how, did, that quickly what he had just written? Or is there some other way of reconciling this? I think there's some other way. And ESV and some other translations help bring that out. John is using a present tense. Here's, here's one way of reading it. John is using a present tense verb throughout. And one way of reading the present tense verb often is that the writer in Greek would have been using it in the sense of an ongoing action, not an isolated event, not a one-time thing, not a, not a thing that happens periodically, but he's talking about something that's ongoing. And I think that's why it helps to read this in a different way, like the ESV put it and like... Some other translations put it. Did you see that in verse 4? Everyone, not everyone who sins, or not everyone who commits sin, but everyone who makes a practice of sinning. See that? It's a big difference here. Now, I don't want to water this down because even, even reading it like this, this is, this is a tough text, and he's going to challenge you, okay, all of us. But I don't want to make him say something he didn't intend to say. So everyone who makes a practice of sinning, in fact, let's just go through the text. I want to point out something. You might, if you write in your Bible or highlight in your Bible, you might notice this. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning, also in verse 6. And then down to verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. At the end of verse 9, and he cannot keep on sinning. At the end of verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness 
And then at the end, who does not love his brother? There's this emphasis in the text. And I think this is what John is saying here is that if you continue in this practice of sinning, you are not a Christian. Let me read you something here. This is from um, one commentary, the New American Commentary. Um, the writer, writer puts it like this. I think this is a good way of describing it. He says this, this sinning idea. It is a willful rejection and an active disobedience against God's moral standard, which is a characteristic of the child of the devil. All right. Oh, keep in mind those phrases. A willful rejection and an active disobedience against God. Uh, then down below he says something else. He says... From all indications, the apostle is dealing with individuals who are indifferent to sin. They believe that they could engage in any and all kinds of sinful activities and still be in fellowship with God. In their line of reasoning, their acts were merely amoral. It was such licentious beliefs that John confronts. Sin is not amoral. It is not something to which one can be indifferent. On the contrary, sin is a willful disregard for God. It is a rebellious revolt against God's will. End quote. Now, that's pretty, pretty important to get this. Because this text could make you feel really guilty. If you're somebody who struggles with assurance, you recognize your own sins very acutely. You're conscious of them. You know about them. You confess them. You're trying to do better. You're addressing these areas of weakness in your life. This, this text could really make it hopeless for you because you're like, I'm, I'm done. Because that's... There's nothing that I can, I mean, I, I don't know. What am I going to do? You know, that, this could really make you feel hopeless. So it should make you feel hopeless. This is talking about someone who has a willful disregard for the will of God and persistent disobedience, persistent rebellion. That's what he's talking about here. So it's important to read John in the right way in order for him to teach us what he wants to teach us. Now, I'm going to... I'm not going to spend all night reading to you, but I do want to read you something else from a different commentary because he addresses so much the struggle in teaching a text like this from the pastoral perspective. You know, when you're, when you're presenting uh, thoughts about 1 John 3, you, you want to comfort people if they need to be comforted, but you want to challenge them if, if they need to be challenged, right? And you, you want to do both of them in the same setting without comforting people who don't need to be comforted or challenging those who don't need to be challenged. So when I was reading this from this particular commentary, it kind of, it resonated with, with my own struggle. But he says this, it's two paragraphs, all right? Just listen to what he says here. This brings us full circle as we return to the subject of assurance. John's intention is to exhort his followers to superior Christian discipleship in a way that will strengthen their faith. Therefore, his appeals to holiness emphasize not the impossibility of sin, but the connection to Christ. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, quote. He goes on, the assumption throughout is that John's audience is born of God, that they enjoy a redeemed place with the Father. In light of that privilege, sin should have no place. Holiness becomes an imperative, fueled not by fear of jeopardy. In other words, if I may interpret a little bit what he's writing. Holiness is not something you do because you're afraid you're going to go to hell if you don't. It's not, it's not fueled by a fear of jeopardy, but by a heartfelt response to the security that God's love gives us. Do you see the difference there? 
You don't do holiness because you're afraid of God. You do holiness because you're secure in the love that he's provided for you. So this passage gives us comfort. It goes on. Cosmetic changes appear in our lives in response to threat. Cosmetic changes, superficial changes. Just change, you know, change, move things around a little bit, make them look a little bit better, a little nicer, a little more religious. It's cosmetic changes. We make those kinds of changes in response to threat. So hellfire and brimstone, don't want to go to hell, I'm going to straighten up, that sort of thing. Typically doesn't last, cosmetic changes. He goes on, permanent change comes to us when we are safe and assured in God's love. This safety must be anchored in the objective work of Christ on the cross. So we practice holiness in view of the cross. Out of gratitude for the security he's provided in him by his spirit. Right. So this provides assurance to you that if you doubt your salvation, you can turn to the words of John here and recognize the connection between holiness and Christ. He's writing this to people who were in Christ. Okay. Now, that's the comfort part. Let me read you one more paragraph, same author. In fact, the very next paragraph in the commentary. And this is important. It may be particularly important for some of us. He says this, However, at the risk of taking away the assurance that I have so carefully protected in the preceding paragraph, I cannot help but feel troubled by verses such as 6, 8, and 10. Let's look at 6, 8, and 10. I just want to get them before you once, once more. 6 says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Strong words. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's a pretty strong verse. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident... Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Which, that's a segue into the next paragraph. Okay, so he says, this writer says, by the way, this writer is coming at this. I believe he's from a, a Lutheran perspective, just to give you an idea of his, his, kind of, his, his background. Um, and, and Luther was, if he's consistent with, you know, Martin Luther's teaching, uh, it was very much of an emphasis on, say, by faith only, apart from works. You know, it's just to give you a little bit of, of an idea about his theological orientation. But he says, uh, I cannot help but feel troubled by verses such as 6, 7, 6, 8, and 10. John seems to sound a warning here, a final and terrible warning that lives characterized by sin, lives willfully disobedient and unrighteous, cannot be lives that are born of God, that know Him and abide in Him. Such persons possess the dreaded prospect of eternity without God. They are, quote, the children of the devil, in quote, 310. Setting our pastoral concerns about assurance aside, in other words, as the pastoral part of preaching, we've got this desire to want to comfort people, you know? We want to, we want to make people feel good about them, their relationship to God. There's that, that innate desire within us, you know, pastorally. So he says this, setting that aside, setting our pastoral concerns about assurance aside, does this warning have a valid place in the teaching and preaching of the church? 
It is like those passages in Hebrews that every Calvinist prefers to avoid, particularly Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, also chapters 3 and 4, where the writer warns Christians not to fall into disbelief as did the Israelites who fell into the desert and failed to enter the promised land. However I communicate this, he says, I must weigh carefully the measure of exhortation and the measure of grace that I serve up. I must be honest about both, but in the end my aim is to strengthen, not to tear down, to fortify belief and resolve, not to weaken them through severe exhortation. I thought that was a couple of pretty good paragraphs there because he, he's, he's expressing, that. you see what he's doing? This, he's expressing this desire. In one hand, he wants to comfort people, but on the other hand, he doesn't want to comfort them if they need to be warned. And so he wants to warn the people who need to be warned. He wants to comfort the people who need to be comforted. And this text, I would say this text leans more toward the warning part, don't you think? But we need to recognize very well the clear teaching of other passages about assurance and comfort, whereas John in these seven verses is leaning much toward the warning side. So I don't want to skate over that. In fact, if you're you know, following along in the back of the bulletin, John's word to us, I've got two things I want to suggest to you from John. I think these are consistent with John's teaching here. One is, your Christianity is seen in what you do, not what you say. <clears throat> that very last verse of the text, right? He says, it's evident if you're a child of God by what you do. Uh, I don't know if maybe you think, well, that's just, that's so simple as to be unnecessary. I mean, I already knew that. Of course it's true. Not everybody knows that. Not everybody sitting in our pews knows that. Not everybody does. Because some people think that... Well, you know, I confessed Christ, I got baptized the right way. I sit in pews in the quote-unquote right church. And so I'm good. I think John would push back on that. I think John would say, I don't know if you're, if you're a Christian. Let me see how you live. Let me see how you live. Very last phrase in the paragraph is, do you love your brother? He's going to talk about that in the next paragraph, which we studied a couple months back. But he... He says, essentially, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you're a Christian if, if you live like one. And if you don't live like one, then you're not one. doesn't matter what you call yourself. That's, that's pretty powerful. And so maybe everybody in this crowd already knew that, but maybe if somebody didn't, you need to know this. Because God cares a whole lot about what you do. I don't know what you've heard elsewhere. And I know there's some teachings out there that are, uh, that are I think, heretical. If they, if they say it doesn't matter what you do, you know, God doesn't care that much about what you do. Um, he does care. He's very much concerned about what you do. If you practice righteousness, if you do the right thing. Again, I feel the need to offer the, the, this necessary caveat here. You're not going to do it all right. You're not going to do it perfectly. You're not going to do it uh, the way that you want to, or maybe even the way that you ought to. You're going to sin. You're going to sin at times. You're going to sin on occasions. But what John is talking about here is that you, if you're a Christian, you're not going to just fall into persistent and willful disobedience, rebellion against God. If you do, you've lost your faith and you are outside of the fellowship. And you have, I believe we're reading John correctly here, you have lost your salvation if you persist in willful disobedience. So if there's anyone here tonight, though you're sitting in a church pew, but your life is characterized by willful 
willful and persistent disobedience to the will of God, you're not a Christian. Not a Christian. You may have been baptized, but you're not a Christian. Because being a Christian means walking with Christ. You may have been a Christian once. That's why I, the word Christian is not a lifelong, it's not a lifelong thing in the sense that, um, that once you become a Christian, that that designation always describes you. If you persist in willful disobedience to God, then you're not walking consistently with Christ. You're not to be called. Christian implies what you're doing. That's the point I'm getting at. So this is, a, this is a strong thing. This is a strong warning for any of us who might privately be engaged in behavior that reflects a disobedient and rebellious heart. And we have lost the sensitivity to that. We have lost the desire to overcome it. We've just kind of given in. And this can be anything. It can be for one of those things we say is really bad, or it can be something that we would say is, is sort of minor. I don't, those designations aren't right, but the way we what we call them you know some some private sins that we're just persisting in and, and we basically said lord it's just the way i am you know i have an anger problem i have a gossip problem i have a pornography problem i have a uh, fornication problem i have a drinking problem it's just who i am you know i'm not fighting against it i'm just doing it Lord, I just hope you're a God of grace. See, that kind of attitude betrays an attitude of rebellion. That's a dangerous spot to be in if I'm reading John right here. I mean, probably this, is, this would need a lot more time than this. I recognize, <clears throat> I don't think John is saying that if you persist in willful disobedience, it means you never were a Christian. I know you could read it that way because he said you have not seen or you have not known. I believe, reading this consistently with other passages, what John is saying there is if you are living in willful disobedience to the will of God, you are living as if you've never even known him because once you've been born of God, it ought to have lifelong implications. But in your case, he would be saying it doesn't. You're living as if you haven't been born again because of other passages that teach us that we can walk in righteousness and then turn away. So the, the two things really <clears throat> that I wanted you to get from this that I think John wants us to get is <clears throat> you can tell if someone's a Christian by what he or she does. And number two, if you continue in willful sin, you're not a Christian. Uh, you're not, your, your relationship with God is not what it ought to be. If I would add a third one to that, it would be more of an implication from reading this passage in the context of the New Testament. And that is that don't lose heart. Don't lose heart in this. If you struggle with assurance, Almost, I would, I would almost like to say this. If you struggle with your assurance and you're always doubting, the fact that you care and the fact that you're trying and struggling gives me encouragement. And it suggests to me that you haven't turned your back on God and you haven't walked away from Him because you're struggling and you're still trying. There's plenty of assurance in the Bible. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. First Romans 8, 1. But you've got to read that in view of passages like this one. You're no longer in Christ if you're not living, not trying to live consistently with what it means to be one of Christ's people, right? And so in this text, it is a text of warning. It's a text that ought to challenge us and to evaluate our lives. And, and again, this will apply differently to different people in this room. 
But if you're not, if you recognize in yourself kind of a, um, a complacency, it's a dangerous place to be in. If you're in a place where you know you've got this sin in your life and you're not really addressing it, you're just kind of saying, I just, I don't know, it's just kind of who I am. I don't think I can ever really win out over that sin. That's a dangerous place to be in because John, I think, is, I think John would challenge you on that. He would say, don't have that attitude. There's no sin in your life that you can't make progress in facing with, a, with the help of the Spirit of God, working through His Word and through your life in order to bring you, Bible, big word for this is bring you longer on that path of sanctification where He's gradually conforming you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian tonight, though, I've been talking mostly to church folks, to, uh, to Christian people, just to get us to thinking about how we live, because we, we need to evaluate. But if you're not a Christian tonight, <clears throat> we want you to know that the invitation, it doesn't mean, coming to Christ does not mean you get everything worked out, um, you pretty much get close to perfection, and then God will help you just kind of get over the edge there. That's not it at all. You come to Christ because you need Him, and because you're broken, because you recognize that, and you want you want to have uh, you want to have a relationship with the one who created you. We invite you to come to Jesus tonight with faith in your heart, confession on your lips, and baptism as a public act of what public uh, sign of what God is doing in your life as He washes your sins away by His blood, and you can be baptized this very very night. Maybe you need to come back to Him tonight. You're a child of His. You've been baptized into Christ, but your life hasn't reflected that. We want to help you however we can. Let's stand and sing. If you need to come, I hope you will.